And the subject that we have in front of us, baptism and communion, or the Lord's Supper, understanding and celebrating these ordinances. Well, we want to take some time tonight uh, to talk a little bit about what the ordinances mean and uh, their significance in our life. Introductory section, the two ordinances. Uh, so as we get into the notes, and let's answer this question first. What's an ordinance, right? So an easy definition, a way to remember an ordinance is a practice that was ordained or established by Jesus during his public life and ministry and that he instructed his followers to continue to practice after his public life and ministry. When we read and study the New Testament, there are two practices that we believe qualify that can be rightly characterized as ordinary Christian denominations. One is baptism, Catholicism. There's another word. It's the word sacrament. The Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments. We do not use the word sacrament. We use the vow. That's the, that's the same concept. And for us here at our church, two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These uh, ordinances have a place in the life of the individual believer. They have a place in the life of the church. And so what we want to do is answer questions that can help us understand both of those arenas, our own personal life and walk following Jesus and the life of the church. So uh, what is baptism? What does it mean to be baptized, baptized by immersion? What is the Lord's Supper? Who should observe the Lord's Supper? These are all questions that we're going to endeavor to answer together tonight. So we're going to start with baptism, and then we'll go to the Lord's Supper. So baptism. First, what is it? When we talk about the ordinance of baptism, we are talking specifically about water baptism. So this is something that is physical, something that is visible. The majority of the time when you're reading about baptism in the New Testament, it's talking about water baptism. So the majority of the time, because there are other kinds of baptisms in the New Testament, right? But predominantly, when you read it in the New Testament, it's talking about water baptism, something physical, something visible. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 is one of the accounts of Jesus' baptism. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There's a lot going on there. But for our purposes... We want to think about how this thing of baptism is being described, right? And in this story in the life of Jesus, you've got people and you've got water, right? So we're firing on all cylinders now, right? What is baptism? What is the ordinance of baptism? There is water baptism. That's what we're talking about. Something physical, something visible. So we know we got water and people. So what's next? How does this baptism unfold? What does it look like, right? Another phrase sometimes people use is the mode of baptism. We believe and teach that the acceptable mode or method of baptism is something called baptism by immersion. This means that a person is put completely under the water and brought back up again. That second part is very, very important, right? <laughs> under the water, brought back up again, out of the water. Baptism by immersion, right? So the idea is you put somebody under, you bring them back up again, right? If baptism by immersion is what we believe the New Testament teaches, and what that does is it eliminates alternative modes or methods of baptism, like sprinkling, right? So some might be familiar with denominations, Catholicism and Christian denominations that practice baptism with sprinkling, 
We would make the argument that when you read and study the New Testament, that what it requires is baptism by immersion. That a person has to be put under the water, brought back up out of the water. There's a lot we could say about that, but let's give you three arguments for baptism by immersion. The first one, the Greek word, Gary, baptizo. Now that Greek word, baptizo, it literally means to dip, to plunge, to immerse. Now that word, baptizo, is a transliterated word in our English Bible. What that means is they took the Greek word and they made an English word, right? So when you read baptism, most of the time, again, most of the time, it's the Greek word baptizo, and it has this idea of immersing into liquid, right? One illustration of this is a, uh, like they would die. They would have these cloths in this process of dying, right? So when someone would read that Greek word, they would make an association with something that required it to be submerged, right? So the reason that you can make a good argument that baptism by immersion is the New Testament method of baptism is because that's literally the meaning of the word, right? Baptizo, immerse, submerge, right? A second argument, and probably the most compelling argument, is just when you read the New Testament and you read the descriptions of baptism, it seems like immersion is logical given the way that baptism is described. So we already read one accounting of Jesus' baptism. What about Matthew's accounting? Matthew 3, 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. So the same thing that Matthew says is similar to what Mark said. He comes up out of the water. Now the wording... Right? When it describes him going down into the water, it specifically says they went, into the, they went in the Jordan. Right? So there was a distinction between the body of water and then the actual water itself. So when you're reading that phrase, what's likely being described, and again, there's arguments that can be made, but what's likely being described, they went down into the water, and then Jesus went under and was brought back up, and he was coming up out of the water. That's when the heavens opened, the Ethiopian eunuch, like, here it, like a dove is descending, that you have to have lots of water. That's Jesus has to be immersion taking place. Baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. Like it all seems to imply that you have to have lots of water, right? That there has to be immersion taking place in order for it to be appropriate. John 3.23 is an interesting verse. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Again, that's not like as much of a slam dunk as some of the other arguments, but why, why would the gospel writer feel the need to give us that detail, right? Why specify that there was much water, right? The implication is pretty clear. If you're going to baptize with water, you need a lot of water, right, in order to be able to baptize properly and appropriately. So that's the um, second argument there for baptism by immersion. And then finally, there was a third one. Baptism is a picture of Christ's death and resurrection, and that would seem to necessitate a baptism by immersion. The verses that were, one of the verses that we're memorizing this week, Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now we'll talk more about that passage in Romans and how there's several layers there beyond just water baptism, but there's definitely that element that Paul is talking about. And the picture is supposed to be our death burial and resurrection of Christ. We're supposed to be picturing that when we get baptized. And that is a picture that doesn't really quite work outside of full immersion, 
right? So Jesus wasn't buried the way that he wasn't six feet under, right? He was in a tomb. But his body was completely concealed, right? So the idea that he was, he died, he was buried, and he rose again, that imagery, if that's what baptism is supposed to represent, it seemed to necessitate immersion, right? A complete under and back up out again. So there's a lot more that could be said, but when we ask and answer that question, how should we baptize? What's the proper mode? We would make an argument from the New Testament that it's baptism by immersion. Who needs to be baptized? Everybody. But the New Testament teaches that all people who put their faith in Jesus for salvation should demonstrate their faith through an act of obedience, and that's baptism. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus represents the one and only qualification for baptism according to the New Testament. So who should get baptized? People who believe in Jesus for salvation. When Jesus instructed his followers to go into all the world, proclaim the gospel, and make disciples, part of that great commission was baptizing, right? So the idea is that people who hear the gospel, they believe in Jesus, and they demonstrate their faith through an act of obedience. And that obedience is water baptism. I go down into the water, I come back out again, I identify with Christ. And so who should be baptized? If you're here and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you have yet to be baptized, I want to encourage you to consider taking that very, very important step of obedience, demonstrating your faith, identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Because everybody who has believed in Jesus should be baptized. When should a believer be baptized? Baptism should happen as soon after salvation as practically possible. In the New Testament, we see baptizing, baptism happening quickly after belief in Jesus. Um, there's Acts 2.41. I'm going to go down to Acts 8.36 and 38. It says, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So what we see in Scripture is there's salvation and there's baptism. And so as soon as it's practically possible, those who have believed should be encouraged, should be led to take that step of faith and that step of obedience and get baptized. Now, baptism is something we should take seriously, so no one should be forced into getting baptized, right? We, we don't want to push somebody along just to, you know, put up a stat or, you know, we really want you to get baptized. We want people to understand what it is. We want people to be comfortable making that step. And so sometimes it's not immediate, right? They make a decision for Christ and it's going to take some time teaching them the word, explaining what it means. So we don't want people to be rushed into baptism. We also don't want to put unnecessary burdens on people to be baptized. And some might um, have reference point for this in your life. But the idea in the New Testament is that someone believes in Jesus and they're baptized, right? So sometimes what we, what we would want to do is we would say, well, we got to get you fixed up before we get you baptized, right? We got we to gotta change this and we got to change that. And we got to change this. And sometimes that comes from a sincere desire to help people grow. But here's what I would say. When we read the New Testament, you get saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And then you identify with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. You show people you have believed. You take a step of faith and a step of obedience and you get baptized. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work in our life, and he grows us and changes us. So we don't want to rush people into being baptized, and we also don't want to make all these extra obstacles, right? 
we've got to look a little, we've got to look a certain way and talk a certain way and act a certain way. No, Jesus invites all those who have put their faith and trust in him to identify with him in baptism. We don't want to put unnecessary burdens on people. If someone's been saved and they understand what it means to be baptized, let's get people baptized. Amen? Right? So we don't want to rush people into it. We certainly don't want to prevent people by putting up kind of our expectation for what baptism should be. So let's move on to this next section. And this is where we want to spend a good bit of our time. Why should a believer be baptized? Because it's answering this question that gets into the purpose of the ordinance, its purpose in our life, its purpose in the life of the church, right? So why should we get baptized? Five reasons a believer should be baptized. Number one, to lift up Jesus and proclaim the gospel. Since baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Baptism is a physical testimony of the power of the gospel. See, above everything else, when someone gets baptized, it's supposed to be a celebration of who Jesus is and the work that he does in the lives of people. When someone gets baptized, you know what that means? God is still saving sinners. Jesus, the gospel is still changing lives. And so first and foremost, baptism is a celebration. It is lifting up Jesus. It's proclaiming the gospel. Before anything else, that ought to be our heart and our focus. And if you have the privilege of being part of a church that sees people baptized on a regular basis, that's something you ought to be thankful for. Amen. It's something that you ought to celebrate. Yep. It ought to get you excited. And it's something that you ought to want to have a part in. It's something you, you ought to want to see people in your life, your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, get saved and get baptized. That's the Great Commission. That's the work that he wants to do. And it doesn't even stop there as he wants to, uh, us to have a role in seeing people grow in their faith. But what a wonderful thing it would be for you to be able to come to church on a Sunday morning and watch somebody that you had the privilege of witnessing go down into the baptismal waters and identify with Christ in baptism. You ought to be thankful for it. You ought to celebrate it. And you ought to want to participate in it. I want to see somebody in my life that's not saved, get saved, and get baptized. Because I want to lift up Jesus. I want to celebrate the gospel. And that's what baptism is all about. Number two, to be obedient to the command of Jesus. Jesus very clearly told his disciples that everyone who believes in Jesus for salvation should demonstrate their faith and commitment to Christ by being baptized. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, we referenced it before. That makes it very clear that baptism is a step of obedience, right? So baptism is not an optional thing that we can decide whether or not we want to set it off. Well, as we'll see, it's not necessary for our salvation, but it is definitely a command that Jesus gave to us as his followers. And so why should we get baptized? To be obedient to what Jesus said. I want you to identify with me in my death, in my burial, and my resurrection. I want everyone to see that you have believed and that you are committed to following. So to be obedient to the command of Jesus. Number three, to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus initiated his public life and ministry by getting baptized, right? Think of all the things that Jesus could have done to get things kick-started. But instead, he goes to John and he says, baptize me. And John, like most of us, was like, I don't think I should do that, right? But what was Jesus doing? Jesus was doing for you and for me in, in a demonstration of his love for us, he was giving us an example. He was showing us what it means, right, to be a Jesus follower. And he started things off, his public ministry, 
initiated through baptism. And so why should we get baptized? To follow the example of our Savior, to walk in his steps. Number four, to identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6, 3, and 4, the Bible says, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, I mentioned earlier, we were going to circle back around to this. This is our memory verse, right? When we read Romans 6, 3, and 4, right, it's important to understand that there's several dimensions here, right? In one sense, when a person believes in Jesus, there is a baptism that takes place. It's not a physical, visible baptism. Baptized into Christ, baptized into salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit, right? We mentioned that there are other instances where baptism is discussed. This would be one of them. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the excesses of that uh, in a moment. But when Paul is talking here, if if we just think about water baptism, we're missing a little bit of it. But water baptism is definitely part of the conversation. So he says, you put your faith in Jesus. Because listen, if Paul was talking just about water baptism, he just spent a lot of time, Romans 2 and 3 and 4, talking about how you don't get saved by works, right? So when Paul is talking here, he's like, we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what brings us into the family. It's a work of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? And then when you and I take that physical, visible step Water baptism, what we're doing is we're letting everybody know about the work that has taken place in my life. I'm identifying with Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. When I say I'm willing to go under and come back out again, just like Jesus was taken outside the camp, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he suffered shame, right? I'm saying I'm willing to identify with that. I'm willing to identify with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection. So I'm identifying with Christ. I'm throwing in my lot with Jesus. When I get baptized, I'm saying that's what it's about. Not about a church or denomination first. It's about Jesus. I'm with him. I want people to know that that's my guy. I'm with Jesus and I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. And so why should I get baptized? To identify with Christ, to identify with his suffering, to identify with his death, to identify with his resurrection. Number five, to publicly declare our desire to follow Jesus. We get baptized in a public gathering of other Christians so that they know I am ready and I want to follow Jesus. And then finally, number six, why should we get baptized? To qualify for membership in the local church. Acts 2.41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So in the New Testament, we see the local church and we see people becoming part of or joining the local church And we believe there's reason in the New Testament, reason to believe that part of the process of going from being an unbeliever who's not part of a local church to a believer who is part of a local church is a step of baptism. Now, we're going to have a lesson on on the church and church membership. We'll have a chance to lean into it a little bit more. But there's there's very good reason to believe from the New Testament that there's church being part of a local church, being joined together in a local church, it's not a free-for-all. Right? There's a process by which we are joined to the local church. And what we believe and see practiced is this idea that I identify with Christ. I've been saved. I identify with him in baptism. And now I can join myself together with a local church. Right? So the reason baptism is such an important step 
is that that now enables me. It's like I get baptized, and now I can, I, I can join myself together with a local church and be part of that church's carrying out of the Great Commission and the work that God would have for us to do. So this is why we should get baptized, right? This is the purpose. This is its work in our life and in the life of the church. So a couple of um, warnings before we move on to the Lord's Supper. Baptismal regeneration. So some would teach that baptism has saving power. We reject this as a false teaching, and it adds works to grace. Baptism does not save a person, and it is not necessary for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.17, this is Paul. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of, of Christ should be made of none effect. Why would Paul make a statement like that? Why would Paul make a statement like that? See, the reason we started with all the positives before we started about we, we don't believe baptism saves us because we can be guilty of this. We can be guilty of kind of minimizing the significance of baptism because it doesn't save us. It has no uh, additional work related to our salvation. But the reality is baptism is so important and so significant. We don't want to minimize it. But at the end of the day, Paul said, I came to preach the gospel. Right? Why would he make that statement if baptism with water or any other baptism for that matter, is necessary for my salvation. He wouldn't have, right? You can read that passage in the book of Mark, Mark 16, 15 through 16. And if you want, you can come up to me afterwards and say, what does that have to do? Read that and see if you can figure out why that's a one we would put under that section where baptism doesn't save us. That'll be a fun exercise. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and the second blessing. So not only does baptism not save a person... It also does not do any additional work related to our salvation or our spiritual life. See, that's very important. Right? It doesn't save us. It also doesn't do anything else to us. It doesn't save us more. It doesn't cleanse us more. Right? Nothing. There's this um, idea or this teaching of a second blessing that comes at the moment of salvation or a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the New Testament talks about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? And while there was a temptation to add a little bit of an extended section on this topic, there's a good quote uh, from Dr. Wayne Goodman, Systematic Theology, fantastic summary of Christian teaching. What shall we say about the phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit? It is a phrase that the New Testament authors use to speak of coming into the new covenant power of the Holy Spirit. It happened at Pentecost for the disciples, but it happened at conversion for us. It is not a phrase that the New Testament authors would use to speak of any post-conversion experience of empowering by the Holy Spirit, right? I think that that's a succinct explanation of what our position would be when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you get baptized by water, what you're doing is obeying Christ, you're following example, you're identifying with Christ, but you're not more saved after you get baptized. And we don't believe that there's this two-tiered Christianity, Right where there's the baptized people and they've got the second blessing and they've gotten this upper echelon. The reality is that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we all become part of the family of God. We're all growing, right? We're all at different points and places of maturity. But when it comes to this idea of trying to categorize everybody out by baptism or the extra blessing of the Holy Spirit, we just don't see that in the New Testament. So baptism does not save us, nor does it accomplish any additional work related to our salvation or our spiritual life. Um, so that's the uh, purpose or the reason for baptism. 
Um, a couple of short, um, uh, a couple of short questions to answer, and then we'll get into the Lord's Supper. Where should a believer be baptized? Baptism is best practiced in the local church and during a public assembly of the church. So let me give you sort of abbreviated version, and we're going to go uh, to the next section here in a moment. But the reality is that the church, the local church, is the mechanism through which Jesus is working to accomplish the Great Commission in the world. And so the reason why it's best for baptism, for this ordinance to be practiced within the context of the church, there are several practical reasons. I give you three um, but what I just want to encourage you with is that the Bible doesn't necessarily explicitly state that a person has to be baptized in the public gathering of the church. In fact, the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch is a good example of someone getting saved and let's get baptized, let's get it done, right? So we wouldn't say there's this explicit scriptural mandate, but what we would say is that there are very good, practical, reasonable benefits to the ordinance of baptism happening within the context of the local church. And that's the same thing that we would say to the answer to the question, who should baptize, right? The idea is that only the qualified, only the, only the uh, people that have a license for it or something, right? But the reality is we don't see that either, right? There is some pattern in the New Testament for um, qualified spiritual leadership, whether it's apostles or pastors. And again, when we're talking about what's practical for baptism to be practiced in the local church, for the people to be doing the baptizing, leadership in the church, practical, orderly, reasonable, right? If we want to have conversations about the specifics of that, and people want to play devil's advocate, I know some really love to do that, right? Play devil's advocate. We can have those conversations. But if we're talking about how are we going to do the work of, of the, the Great Commission as a local church decently and in order, baptism taking place in the church, having a process, having certain people, we, because it's so important, we don't want it to be a free-for-all, right? And so while there may be some latitude in terms of what the New Testament uh, places in terms of restrictions, ultimately, what, when we talk about what's reasonable and practical and what we've seen throughout church tradition, it's safe and reasonable for baptism to happen in a church and for qualified spiritual leaders, uh, those who are mature in their faith, to be doing the baptizing, right? So that's baptism. And I want to encourage you, if you have additional questions, to come see me afterwards, I'm excited, about, uh, I'm excited about us growing in our knowledge of these ordinances, the place that they have in our life, and how God wants to use them in our church. So we have baptism. What about the Lord's Supper? Also referred to as the Lord's Table and Communion, this is the second of the two ordinances of the church. So when we talk about the Last Supper, Communion, we're talking about a moment in the life of Jesus that we refer to as the upper room, right? The last supper in the upper room, right? And when Jesus got his um, uh, disciples together and he was nearing the end of his life, he went through this process of, of having Passover with them. And there's this, there's this depth of meaning when you make a connection between communion or the Lord's Supper and the Passover. You can see for the for the disciples, the Passover had great significance, right? We're going to get together and we're going to think about our physical deliverance from bondage in Egypt, right? It was a significant moment in our uh, nation's history. And what Jesus was going to do was he's going to take the Passover and say, yes, physical deliverance from physical bondage. But what you're going to begin to celebrate as you go forward after my death and resurrection and ascension, what you're going to celebrate is spiritual deliverance from spiritual bondage, right? So the reason that Jesus took the Passover meal 
And he did what he did with so much of the traditions and the teachings. He elevated it. He took it to new heights. He said, there is the, the, the celebration that we all have in our deliverance and how God intervened in the lives of our ancestors and brought about just this miracle, all the incredible things that he did. And he said, and when you, going forward, when you get together and when you observe uh, this meal, when you drink, when you eat the bread and you drink the juice, it's gonna, you're going to be remembering another way that God intervened in human history and that he brought about redemption for all people. We're going to talk about a serious miracle. Um, the sins of the whole world brought upon the shoulders of one person, right? Jesus took Passover and he elevated it. And so as Jesus followers, when we get together and we observe the Lord's table, we're talking about deliverance. We're talking about spiritual, uh, the work that Jesus Christ did uh, redemption, to bring about redemption into our lives. There's two passages, right? There's one of the gospel's accountings of the upper room, and then there's the extended treatment that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the one we're probably most familiar with when we're observing the Lord's table together. So I want to read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 34, right? This is a larger section, but I think it's important for us to get the, uh, the context of what we're studying. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 34, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. So it's this text of Scripture that we so often go to to help uh, guide us when, as brothers and sisters, we come together to participate, right? So who should participate in the Lord's Supper? People who have believed in Jesus for salvation, right? Just like the ordinance of baptism has been given to those of us who follow, uh, who have believed in Jesus, so too the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's table, it has been given to those of us who believe. Uh, the context of the relevant New Testament passages make it clear it's a practice for believers. Um, while not explicitly taught, some have argued that you've got to be saved and you've got to be baptized to participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, we would say that we don't see any um, clear mandate in Scripture for that. Although it's not unreasonable for some churches to have um, safeguards in place. Because just like baptism shouldn't be a free-for-all, the Lord's table shouldn't be a free-for-all. Right? So we should want to approach it seriously. We don't want to ever overstep the, uh, the limitations of Scripture. But I am thankful for spiritual leaders and people who God has given the opportunity to lead and entrusted them with that responsibility, that they would take it seriously enough 
to make sure that when we come together, we do it decently, we do it in order, and we do it in a way that reflects um, a, a seriousness for what we're doing, right? But when it comes to just that simple, basic question, who should participate? If you believed in Jesus, you've joined yourself together with a local church, which in many cases would require a baptism, right? But if you're, you're part of a local assembly of believers and they come together for the table, you ought to participate, right? Why should we participate? What's the purpose? Let's get into the question of why. What's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Five reasons we should observe. Number one, this might sound familiar, to lift up Jesus and proclaim the gospel, right? Just like baptism, it's a visible testament to the transformational power of the gospel, right? Just like when someone goes down into the water, God is still saving sinners. When God's people get together and we break the bread and we drink the juice, what we're saying is that saving work, that redeeming work that Christ did on the cross, it's still changing lives today because we're here and we're observing the Lord's table because we have experienced the blessing of salvation and the work, of, uh, and the work that Christ did on the cross for us, right? So uh, first and foremost, it's about lifting up Jesus and proclaiming the gospel. Second, to be obedient to the command of Jesus. Just like baptism, this is what we've been instructed to do. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24. This do in remembrance of me. Number three, to remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. When Jesus is describing it in Mark 14, 24, and he said unto them, this is my, the, my blood of the New Testament, which is what? Shed for many. When we gather around uh, and observe the Lord's table together, we are remembering the sacrifice of Christ, the suffering of Christ. He was wounded, the Bible says in Isaiah, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. And when we gather around the Lord's table, what we're doing is we're remembering that there was a sacrifice that was made. Jesus suffered for us. And he suffered for us, and he gave us an example of what it looks like to suffer. And so when we gather, it's a time to meditate on that. It's a time to lean into that. It's a time to remember that Jesus, his body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Brothers and sisters, if we're honest, life gets busy and we move quickly and we forget the heart of our faith, which is that Jesus died on the cross for us that his body was broken for us, that it was bruised for us. And listen, I don't want anybody to get the impression when I say this that I would minimize the things that you're going through in your life because there are people in here and you're going through some difficult things. And I don't know, I can't empathize or sympathize. I can empathize, I can try to understand. But for some, you're going through some really difficult things. But when the Bible says, consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, Why? Lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. When the Bible tells us to consider him, what it's inviting us to do is to look at the example of Jesus, his suffering, his broken body, his shed blood, and to allow it to help you as you go through this life to manage the difficulty, to see in each and every situation the example that Jesus gave me. And I am, I've identified with his suffering. And so I'm going to look to Jesus and I'm going to find strength 
in the example that he gives me because he suffered and he suffered for me, right? So it's the, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Number four, to picture the unity of the body of Christ. Now, there's sort of a relationship here between four and five that I want to make a connection of here, but this practice presents an opportunity for brothers and sisters in Christ to come together in unity around our shared faith. And the beauty and the diversity of the body is on full display. And we come together to remember our Savior and his love for us. You know, why are we here tonight? Right? Is it nationality? Nope. Is it politics? Is it philosophy? Is it the neighborhood that you live in? Is it, well, we won't go with favorite sports teams or anything like that. Why are we, what brings us, what brings us together? Jesus is what brings us together. And when we gather around the Lord's table, it's supposed to be a moment that reflects the unity of the body of Christ, where we're coming around and we're gathering together and what is bringing us together is our shared faith in Jesus Christ. That's what brings us together, is our faith in Jesus. Now, when, when Paul is writing about in the lead up to this in 1 Corinthians, I want you to read with me verses 16 and 17 of chapter 10. The Bible says, The cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is not the communion of the body of Christ, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. The, the context, as Paul leads into his extended description of the Lord's Supper, the context is the unity of the body of Christ. And as we're going to see, there were those who were not contributing to the unity of the body of Christ. They were contributing to disunity. And when we come together, it is an opportunity for us to say what brings us together is our shared faith. What brings us together is the work that Christ has done for us. And that's what ought to unify us. That's what ought to help us get past all of our hangups. That's what ought to help you to look past some of the weird behaviors of some of your brothers and sisters, right? That's what ought to help you to be able to fix things when they're not right. Because at the end of the day, what brings us together here in this place is our faith in Jesus Christ. And what is supposed to take us forward is our shared commitment to the great commission of Jesus Christ. And so what we want is to reflect the unity of the body. And so the communion, the Lord's table, that's what it's about. It's about coming together. Now, when we get to this number five, we'll see where there's an, an overlap here, what, what we mentioned. To examine ourselves and confess our sin. So there's this extended section there where Paul talks about this idea of eating unworthily, right? And sometimes we, we read that, and here's the vision that we get, especially when we get to the part where it says examine ourselves. Now, I'm sure that if I were to ask raise hands, it would not be uncommon to say that typically when we come to that part, examine ourselves, there is broad application made to sin in general in our life, right? And let me just say that that, is a perfectly reasonable application, right? In fact, it would be a real waste if we would gather together to observe the Lord's table together and not take the opportunity to examine ourselves, to really step back and say, is there some, is there some stuff that needs taken care of? Is there some sin that needs confessed? So the broad application to just general sin, 
is appropriate, right? And so when we come to the Lord's table, that is one of the things that we will invite all of us to do. Examine ourselves. Think, step back and say, is there anything that needs confessed? Is there something that needs taken care of? So this general application is appropriate. Where it falls a little bit short is when we, if we try to drag that over into when it starts talking about how we are unworthy in our participation of communion. And let me illustrate it very quickly by telling you a story. So when I was pastoring, I remember we had a guy in the church and it was not that hard to notice that he made a really, really, he made every effort to not come when we were having communion. I mean, it was, it was obvious. He, it was, we are avoiding communion, right? And so I announced that we were going to be having communion one Sunday, and I think he just finally was like, I got to let him know why I'm always bailing whenever we have communion. So he said, can we talk? Sure. So we went into the office, sat down. What's on your mind? He said, Pastor, you know that I was born in this church, right? And I grew up here, and I was attending here all the way up until I was a teenager. And then when I was in high school, I got away from the Lord, and I ended up away from the Lord for many, many years. And it wasn't until about 11, 12 years ago that I came back to Christ and came back to the church. Okay. He said, I had not been attending again, but for about a year, when I showed up one Sunday morning, and it was communion. And I didn't know what else to do. I'm a believer. This is a church I've always been a part of. So I participated. I wanted, I, I wanted to participate. He said, Pastor, full disclosure, there was some stuff, right? There was some stuff going on in my life, right? And I admit that, but I participated. I'm waiting. What is the, where are we getting with this? And he said, after the service, as I'm walking out, before I can say anything to him, a long time faithful member in the church walked up to me and thumped me right in the chest like that and said, I cannot believe that you would participate in communion. Never mind the fact that this is the first time in like a month that you've been here, but I know you. I know about your life. And I don't know what's going to happen. God only knows because you participated unworthily. And he said, and since then, I'm not coming anywhere near communion. Now, let me share with you an irony in that story. When you read the context of 1 Corinthians 11, specifically when it talks about being unworthy, it's talking about the unity of the body of Christ. So if we want to get specific, what makes you unworthy is when you disrupt the unity of the body. When you have ought in your heart against your brother or sister, when you're a gossip or a talebearer, that's what makes someone unworthy. And so the irony of ironies is that if someone was unworthy, and let me just, full disclosure, it's not the business of people to police who's supposed to be taking communion and who's not, right? You have a high opinion of yourself if you think you can spot the worthy and the unworthy, right? And we ought to just be asking God to help give us a heart for our own life and our own stuff, right? But let me just say this. If one of those two guys was unworthy, it was chest thumper. 
if one of those two guys were unworthy, it's the guy who would treat his brother in such an unkind way. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that, whew, that leaves me with plenty to worry about for myself. And I don't have to worry about what's going on in other people's lives. Now, does that mean that just like baptism, the Lord's table should be a free-for-all? No, we ought to take it seriously. And whether you ought to participate when it comes time to pass the bread and pass the juice, it's something you ought to really seek the mind of God about. But I would say this, that when it comes to what the Bible says we need to take care of, see, what did Jesus tell his disciples? He says, if you've got an issue with your brother or your sister and you come to the altar and you've got a gift, you need to leave that gift and go take care of the issue with your brother and your sister. That's where we see parallel between what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying. And so, yes, you ought to examine yourself. And yes, if there's some serious stuff right? Not necessarily related to your relationships or to the body of Christ. If there's some serious stuff, then you might want to take some serious, you might want to take some time to get the help that you need, to take the steps that you need, to see some victory in that. Then you can come to the Lord's table and you can be with your brothers and sisters, right? By all means. But if we're talking about the specific context of what Paul is talking about, when we eat unworthily, it's when we are disrupting the unity of the body of Christ. Now, Further, when it talks about damnation, we, are, we, we love to read into things every time we read a word like damnation, right? It must mean that there are people who are saved, and then they mess it up, and they, eat the, they, they participate in the Lord's Supper, and then, poof, they've ruined it. Now listen, um, salvation is just a little bit stronger than that, yep. right? The work that God does in the heart of a sinner who believes is just a little bit stronger than that, that you can't mess it up because you participate when you're not supposed to be participating, right? When it talks about damnation and it further extends into the idea of the chastisement of the Lord, we understand what it's talking about. We are inviting the chastisement of our loving Heavenly Father who cares enough about us when we as His children are not doing what we're supposed to be doing to help us get back on track, right? So, you can't lose your salvation through an unworthy participation, right? But you do have a, a God who loves you enough. That he's going to make sure that you understand, that I understand the seriousness of what it means to come together as the body of Christ and observe the Lord's table together. So with that being said, the last three sections, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on those. Those are the logistical questions, right? And similarly to baptism, What's an appropriate time and place? The Lord's table is not a free-for-all. We ought to come together in a local church. And as brothers and sisters, things are done decently and in order. We gather together, we get around the table, and we take the elements. Those are the questions that are answered in those places. A baptism in the Lord's table, ordained, established by Jesus, practices that have great significance in my life as an individual believer and that have great significance in the life of the church. We ought to take them seriously they ought to be something that matter to us. When it comes to baptism, it ought to be something that we desire to see happening in our church and not waiting around for somebody else to get someone saved, but to be participating in the Great Commission. And then when it comes to the Lord's table, we ought to come together with our brothers and sisters and use it as an opportunity to reflect the unity of Christ, to rest in his sacrifice for us. They're very, very important part of our spiritual life.